Morena, it's great to be with you all this morning. If you have not registered to be part of one conference, whether you're serving or attending, I really want to encourage you to consider setting aside that time. I said to the 9am, those conferences have been pivotal moments in my own journey. There is something about setting aside time to really intentionally seek God for more than an hour to give him some focus, to get some input, and to let him recalibrate and speak into what he has ahead for each one of us. Well, we're going to get into the word, but before we do, I want to know if there are any fellow firstborns in the room. Not so many in this service. How many of you tick the stereotype box of the firstborn? Keep your hand up if you do. Not so many. I definitely tick the stereotype, but in my own children, the firstborn does not, and it's my middle child who fulfills the role of the responsible, reliable one. (laughs) Growing up as the firstborn, there were a few privileges in my family. You generally got the front seat if one of the parents wasn't in the car, and I was one of four And we didn't always have enough bedrooms, but I typically got one to myself because I was the oldest. But I was also the guinea pig. You know, my parents were testing out this parenting thing on me, and I'm going to say they were tougher. They were tougher on me. They eased up a bit as they went through. Now I know why, because they were tired. My kids ask me why our youngest gets away with things that they didn't get away with, and I'm like, because I'm tired. (laughs) I've been parenting for a long time now, and I'm tired. But in our culture, birth order doesn't really mean too much. You know, we crack some jokes about it. We talk about how it's maybe shaped our personality and our tendencies, but it doesn't really carry any weight. It wasn't true in biblical times, though. In biblical times, the position of the firstborn was a position of great privilege and great responsibility. The oldest son was entitled to a double portion of the family inheritance. They carried the father's blessing, but within this privilege, within this extra provision, they also took on responsibility for caring for and having the spiritual oversight of the entire family line after the father's death. The firstborn was more than a title. It was about power. It was about authority. It was about who got to be in charge, who got to continue the family line and to represent the father. And it's a theme that is tightly woven into Genesis. And this morning, I'm going to take a slightly different approach to preaching. Normally, we take a passage and we unpack it, a story, and we look at how it applies to our lives. And I want to give you an overview today of how this theme of the firstborn plays out across the book of Genesis. Genesis is heavily narrative or story-driven, and it's really easy to focus on the individual stories and to not understand their place in the bigger story, and what is often called the meta-narrative of the Bible. And a couple of years ago, I studied Genesis from a more thematic point of view, and I was blown away. 
And I thought, how have I not known these things? How have I grown up in the church? How have I pastored and not understood some of these core things about my faith? Because Genesis literally means origins. It's a book of origins. It's about how things were formed. And it doesn't just tell us about the origins of creation. It gives the origins of every theme and story that is advanced across the whole of Scripture. And so if we can understand Genesis, what we actually have is an understanding of Scripture as a whole that will help us interpret and understand other books of the Bible. Pastor Shane asked me after the service, he said, people asked, have you been to Bible college? And I have not. I have done one paper. I hope to one day get to do my postgrad studies, but I'm going to be honest, between working and raising a family, going and doing postgrad studies has not been something that I've been able to do. And so I want to encourage you because what I have learned, I say, is I've been to kitchen table seminary. That means at my table, on my couch, I have committed to be a student of the word. And I have learned what I have learned simply by making that commitment. And you can understand the Bible. You can hear God speak through it. You can know what he is saying. And you can understand the meta-narrative of the Bible. So I want to encourage you as we tackle a theme, as we tackle this idea of origins in the book of Genesis, to do what the Apostle Peter tells us to do. He challenges us in Second Peter to make every effort to add to our faith. And one of the things he says that we are to add is knowledge. We are to commit to adding knowledge to our faith so that we understand the word and we understand the God that we serve. Part of that is understanding how Genesis sets up the story of Scripture. I want to give you a few things before we dive into this theme of the firstborn and how it can change how we read the Bible. Genesis sets up the historical and the theological basis for Israel being God's chosen people, and it sets up how the Gentile nations, that's us, will one day also be invited to become sons of Abraham and therefore sons of God. And we see every major theme, every major symbol of Scripture captured in this opening book. For example, in Genesis, we have the creation of the first heaven and earth. In Revelation, we have the establishment of the eternal heaven and earth. In Genesis, Satan tempts Eve to sin. In Revelation, he will be thrown into the fire. In Genesis, death enters the human story. In Revelation, death will be done away with and there will be no more sickness and there will be no more suffering. In Genesis, the Redeemer is promised. In Revelation, he reigns forever. Genesis sets up the whole arc of Scripture and it gives us confidence because what we see is God didn't change his plan. God has been faithful to accomplish what he started in Genesis, and he will, be continued, he will continue to be faithful until it reaches its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation. And that gives us confidence 
as we read scripture and as we submit to the authority of God and his word. And so the theme that I want to really dive into, as you've guessed already, is this theme of the firstborn, how Genesis sets it up. And I'm going to allude to how it's outworked throughout scripture, but that would be like a whole year in itself. So we're going to contain ourselves to Genesis primarily. But before we do, I want to pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you that it is truth. I thank you it is a revelation of who you are and what you have planned and purposed for our lives. And we pray, Father, that we would make it a priority. Lord, I pray that you would put a fresh hunger in our hearts to be students of your word, to know you more intimately through it, and to follow after you more wholeheartedly because of the knowledge that we have gained. Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts this morning? Would you highlight the truth that we each need to receive? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The first thing that the theme of the firstborn teaches us is that family is how God builds the kingdom. There's a structure to the book of Genesis that's called a toldalt structure. And that means that from Genesis 2, 4 onwards, the whole book is framed around families and generations. Every time you hear the words in Genesis, this is the account of, it's a signal to you, there's a new development in the story, there's a new generation on the scene, there's something new that God wants you to pay attention to. And there's a particular family within the book of Genesis that becomes the focus not just of Genesis, but ultimately of God's redemption story. And that's the family of Abraham. Now, if you're not familiar with Abraham's story, Romans Romans calls him the father of faith because God called him out of idolatry. And he said, I want you to leave your father's house and to go somewhere that you don't know yet, but I'll tell you when you get there. And Abraham said yes. Abraham packed up all that he had and he traveled to a yet unknown destination. And the story of his life is that he kept saying yes to God in the face of uncertainty and in the face of impossibility. Because you see, Abraham and his wife Sarah were barren. They had no children. And there's this episode in Genesis 15 where God has come to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm your shield. I'm the one protecting you and I am your exceedingly great reward. I want you to imagine for a moment that God himself is standing before you and he has said, I'm your shield. I'm your reward. Wouldn't you be like, wow, wow. Abraham's like, but... This is what Abraham says. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Can you hear the cry of Abraham's heart? It's like, God, you're going to give me all this stuff, but I've got no one to pass it on to. I don't want to give it to a slave. 
I don't want to give it to a servant. I want to give it to someone who bears my likeness, someone who will continue on my family line. Family was the building blocks of the nation that God wanted to build. And it's still how God builds today because God doesn't want slaves. God doesn't want servants. God wants sons and daughters. In Genesis, we read of how he grew a family, a family that would become a nation that in Exodus, God would claim as his beloved firstborn. But do you know what the greatest story of scripture is? How God birthed a new family, a spiritual family through another man, through Jesus. In Hebrews 2.10, we're taught that God's desire was to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And that he did that through the suffering of Jesus, who he calls the pioneer of our salvation. It could have been enough that the Most High God would offer us a job in his kingdom, that he would make us his employee or his servants, even his slaves. I mean, what an honor. The creator of heaven and earth gives you a job, but that's not what God wanted. He wanted sons and daughters to continue his line, to perpetuate his likeness. And so if 1 John 3 verse 1 tells us, oh, the love that the Father has lavished upon us, that we might be called children of God, for that is what we are. And there's an incredible hope to this family, because for Abraham in his day, there was shame that he didn't have children. There is no shame in the family of God. So whether you are single or married, you belong. Whether you are childless or you have a quiverful, you belong. You get to be part of the family of God. And your marital status, your biological family status doesn't change that position. We are all equal in Christ. And we are all desired by the Father to be part of his family and to be part of building the family business, not because we are slaves and servants, but because we are sons and daughters who carry the Father's heart. And this is the second thing that the theme of the firstborn teaches us. It teaches us about our identity and our purpose. Now, if you read the opening chapters of Genesis and the creation story, you're gonna say to me, Amy, the theme of the firstborn is not there. Those words don't come up, but it's implicit. What did I say at the beginning? The point of the firstborn was it was to represent the father. It was to carry on his legacy. It was to operate in his authority. I want you to listen to what God said when he made mankind. In Genesis 1:26, he said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, 
be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over everything. You and I were made in the image of God. And just like in a family, each child carries something different, reflects something different about their family, we each reflect something different about our Father. But each and every one of us sitting in this room has been made in his image, and that is our identity, that we are image bearers. Our purpose is to perpetuate his authority, to release and to multiply his kingdom in every sphere of influence that he entrusts to us. And the hope of this identity, the hope of this purpose that we have as image bearers who get to walk in the authority of the Father is that unlike biological families where there is one firstborn, we all get to be the firstborn. It is not limited to a singular son. It belongs to each and every one of us. Hebrews 12.23 tells us that collectively... We are the assembly of the firstborn. It's not saying we're the assembly of Jesus, the firstborn. It's describing our nature, that we as the church are an assembly of firstborn children. Paul unpacks this in Galatians 3 to 4, where he explains how it is that we have been adopted into the family of God and given the full rights of adult sons. In Roman times, a child wasn't that different to a slave. So a slave, they didn't have many more rights is what I'm saying. So a slave would actually train them and teach them until they came of age. And when they came of age, they would put on the Roman toga. And that item of clothing symbolized that they were now an adult that they now had access to their father's inheritance and that they were authorized to act on their behalf. Paul likens receiving Christ to that coming of age. And he says, before you received Christ, you're under the law. You don't have any rights. You're like a slave. Somebody tells you what to do. But when you receive Christ, you enter not only into freedom, you enter into the full rights of adult sons. And he says this, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. What he's saying is you've put on that toga that is Jesus. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's really important that we don't, in that first verse, say you are all sons and daughters of God, because actually what Paul is saying is, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, you're all firstborn sons. You all get that privilege. You all get that birthright. You all get that responsibility. Nothing about where you were born, the gender that you were born, disqualifies you from this inheritance. And then he goes on to say 
that Jesus came that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. We carry the authority of the Father to walk out the assignments that he has given us. He has put his Holy Spirit in our hearts so that by his power, we can image and represent the Father well. But while the theme of the firstborn teaches us a lot about who we are, I think what it most teaches us is about who God is, about his generosity towards us, the kindness of his heart to not leave us as slaves, but to make us sons. But what I think it ultimately teaches us is about the sovereignty of God, that he will take responsibility for making sure his plans and his purposes are realized. There were three ways to become the firstborn. You could be born the firstborn. You could stage a coup and take the status and place for yourself, or you could be elevated by God. And what we see throughout Scripture is that God nearly always chooses the younger, the overlooked, and the last. It's especially true in Genesis. Having completed creation, God chooses humanity, that which was formed last, to have authority over what he had made first. And there's a sense in the creation narrative where all of humanity at the beginning of time was called to be the firstborn, to image God, to rule in his delegated authority. And that's the mission of the kingdom, is to restore every person to that firstborn status. In nearly every generation in Genesis, God disrupts the birth order. It is Abel, not Cain. It is Abraham, not Haran. It is Isaac, not Ishmael. It is Jacob, not Esau. He constantly subverts our concepts of power and authority. He doesn't care about outward appearance. He doesn't care about how we want to do things. He cares about the heart. And so he constantly acts to protect the line of the Messiah to ensure that Jesus' line is protected and that the people who carry the line of the Messiah have a heart after the Father's. He's looking for those who will not only understand their birthright, but who will steward it well. I want us to take a really quick look at the story of Jacob and Esau. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, faced the same dilemma that Abraham and his wife did. They were barren. And Isaac prays and says, God, would you give us a child? And Rebekah falls pregnant with not one, but two children, and they're jostling and fighting inside her womb. And so she goes to God and she's like, what is going on here? Why are these babies so busy? And God says to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. 
One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. That's the sovereignty of God there. He's already determined who is going to best serve his purposes in their generation. And so he has elected that not the biological firstborn, but the firstborn that he has chosen will receive the Father's blessing. And when it says then, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. In that phrasing, there's echoes of Nimrod, who's chronicled earlier in Genesis, who was a mighty hunter, but he didn't use his hunting prowess for God's glory. He established Babylon, where Babel was built, where they attempted to become like God, out of pride, not out of submission. So Esau is beginning to be compared to those who have gone their own way, who have sought their own desires. While Jacob was a quiet man, we might think that means he was a bit weak, he was a bit of a pushover, but the language is actually the same as what is used to describe Noah, and it's talking about his righteousness before God, who stayed among the tents. That's talking about how he continued the family business. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. The firstborn was allowed to sell their birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. I want to share a few thoughts about how each of these brothers responded to the birthright that they had and how it connects to our understanding of the sovereignty of God. You've probably heard Jacob get a really bad rep He's the deceiver and the supplanter. But did you know God never actually condemns Jacob in Scripture? He does condemn Esau. He says this in Malachi 1, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. In Hebrews 12, we're warned, see that no one is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Why does God feel so strongly about Esau? Esau wanted the blessing without the responsibility. He wanted the privilege. Even after he sold his birthright, sold the responsibility to his brother Jacob, who in law at that moment became the firstborn, he still goes after the father's blessing, knowing that it's no longer his. He accuses Jacob later on in the story of taking advantage of him. But Esau was from a wealthy family. 
There was plenty of food. He didn't need to sell his birthright. He could have gone and prepared his own meal or asked a servant to prepare his own meal. But in that moment, his appetites mattered more than his responsibilities. And Esau warns us of what it is to despise the incredible privilege and responsibility that we have been given of being the image bearers of God, of being entrusted with his authority to establishing his kingdom. Because how often do we too disdain our privileged position for momentary and fleeting pleasures? But if Esau warns us about despising and thinking little of what God has given us, Jacob warns us about grasping for it. God had decreed in the womb that he was the firstborn. He had been sold the birthright. It was in law and by divine decree already his. But Jacob warns us because from the moment he comes out, he's grasping. He's trying to put himself in a place that God has already given him. And so that leads him into sin, into deceit. The hope that we have of the sovereignty of God, of seeing that he continually from Genesis through to Revelation stays true to his word, stays true to his plan, stays true to his purposes, that no human failing or weakness on our part can thwart it, that God is able to protect and preserve what he has purposed, that should fill us with great confidence and great trust. That's not our job to make things happen. Jacob's responsibility was not to position himself because he had already been positioned. His job was to cultivate the heart that accompanied that position. I was the associate pastor for five years in our previous Elam church, but I was on staff for four years in an admin role before that. But while I was doing that admin role, I was overseeing a lot of ministry things, I was preaching, I, was, I had my probationary credentials within the Elam movement. It wasn't enough for me. I wanted to be a pastor in that church. I wanted the title. And so I grasped and I strove and it did something awful to my heart. And one day I had a standoff with my mother. My dad had come down sick and I'd been asked last minute to preach and rather than feeling privileged, I was resentful. Why do I have to do all this stuff without the title, without the recognition? And as only mothers could, she turned to me and said, there are people sitting in our congregation who would consider it a privilege to serve the lead pastor and to be asked to preach as much as you are asked to preach. You need to sort your attitude out. It has become toxic and it is ugly. Only mums can say those kind of things. But I went before the Lord and I repented and I said, Lord, I lay this calling down. I don't need a title to serve you. I will do whatever you want me to do. 
A few years later, I was made the associate pastor, and when I was, and I stepped into the weight of that role, I knew that had I held it any earlier, it would have destroyed me. And potentially, I would have destroyed others. Seven years ago last month, I resigned as a pastor. A year later, I resigned my credentials and we weren't in Elam for a few years. I could only do that because God had taught me that I was already positioned, that I was already an image bearer, that I already belonged, that I already had a part to play in his family, regardless of what titles I did or didn't carry. This year, I looked to return to paid work. I've been in itinerant ministry for a long time. It doesn't pay. And we needed me to return to work. And I thought that God was going to open the door for me to pastor again. It wasn't his timing. He opened a different door, an unexpected door. And I can testify that I am at peace with where he has me in this season. Because I know that I belong to him. I know that I have value and something to contribute, whether I have a title, whether I have a platform or not. And so do you. You are a firstborn son of the Most High God. You belong to him. You have been called to image him, to represent him, to release his kingdom. And you don't need to strive for anything because it has already been given to you in Jesus. Your only job is to clothe yourself in him and to cultivate the heart that hungers after God and that recognizes the honor that it is to belong to him and to get to partner with him wherever he deems fit in any given season whether it's your home, whether it's your school, your marketplace, you are an image bearer. And you get to bring the power and the glory and the hope of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe today at your goodness. That you would take that which was created last and you would bestow such honor upon us. That you and your great love would call us your children and would invite us to bear your image and to carry your authority to live out of your resources. So, Father, we ask first that we would have a fresh sense of awe at our birthright, that we would not despise it, that we would not easily cede it but that we would seek to steward it well for your glory. And so, Father, we also come and we lay aside our striving. We set aside our pride, our attempts to elevate ourselves. And we thank you that each and every one of us is a beloved, firstborn created in your image to serve your purposes in this generation. Lord, I just pray that we would go forth today with a fresh sense of purpose, 
and a fresh passion to pursue you and to cultivate a heart after your own. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.